All right. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Thankful to be here. Thankful to be back in the book of Acts. So I ask if you will to turn with me to Acts chapter 13. We began back in January with the book of Acts, made it through chapter 12, and really a perfect spot to begin again here, kind of a transition in the book that we'll take notice of this morning. This past summer, I had a bucket list experience for me, and that was not only to go to South Asia, spend some time in India, but for the first time, I'd been there many times, but for the first time, I was able to visit Serampore, Serampore, India. And Serampore is a, a, a place of work for one of my heroes in Baptist life. So I'm, a, as, as Pastor Finn would say, a Baptist nerd. And so I love these things. I know y'all all have bucket lists. Mine was to visit, one of mine was to visit Serampore College and the place where William Carey served and worked for some 34 years of his life, giving his life there to reach uh, the lost people of South Asia and India. I, I actually was so excited. I feel like I'm like a, like a dad here coming home to show pictures. So I got pictures. Is everybody good with that? This, this picture, this, this first, can you go back to the, there, that's the church that William Carey actually preached in. How about that? 200 years ago, this is the church right there on the college that he preached in. And then you can go to the next one, and, and there is William Carey right there. See him? <laughs> A bust of William Carey right outside the home that he lived in with other missionaries as he worked and served. And just one more picture just to prove that I was there. There you go. Just to prove that I was there, I got a selfie with William Carey. And it's not 10 years in the future. I shaved my beard when I got back. So, but William Carey is known as the founder of modern missions. And in 1792, he left for India after having preached a sermon where he gave some words that I've always used to live by, if you will. I always thought of in my own ministry. His sermon simply had two points, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. We as God's people should have expectations that God can do great and mighty things. And then with those expectations in hand, we attempt in God's name to go and do great and mighty things for him. Carey preaching that sermon in 1792 and then leaving to go to the mission field in those days never to return is a great thing. And we still are seeing the fruit of that labor now. And Carey, because of his work, was known as the founder of modern missions. But what I would say ultimately is that we see Carey's heart for missions in the text of Scripture itself. God's word gives us the example that we should be a people that go and take the gospel to other nations. Missions is at the heart of God, therefore it must be at the heart of what we do as a people. The example from this comes from our text this morning in Acts chapter 13 verses 1 through 3. Carrie picking up on this attitude that was happening in the church in the church at Antioch. And so I just want to read these three verses 
Acts 13, verses 1 through 3, as we begin this new semester, if you will, going through the book of Acts. And as you you saw, uh, it said, Lord, send your church. We saw how we, uh, we have met with God. We have been equipped by God. And now God is sending his church out in Acts. So Acts 13, verses 1 through 3, you can read along with me there, if you will. Verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. As we come this morning, we ask that you use your word to place within our own hearts and lives a desire to proclaim your gospel and take it to those who've never heard. Father, thank you for a heart that you have put on display that has reached and saved us. And so, Father, now through us, may others come to know your name. We pray all of this in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We were introduced to the church in Antioch back in chapter 11, a powerful church in a strategic and important city north of Jerusalem. And this church became very strong and really, as you see here, started to be the center of Christianity in its strength at this time. Remember, before we kind of move into this, when we study the book of Acts of the apostles is to study the continuing ministry of Jesus Christ himself. When Luke's writing in chapter 1, verse 1, that's what he says. These are the works of Jesus Christ. And so it's not just this is the work of his apostles. This is the work of Jesus Christ through his apostles. The events recorded in the book of Acts are really the acts of the ascended Jesus as he marches across boundaries of nations and empires even to the ends of the earth. Really, as we read the book of Acts, we recognize that God is still at work because Jesus is alive. And even as he ascends to the throne in chapter 1 and sends his people out, they continue to proclaim his name. And so the church, like Antioch, is never ever meant to be idle because God is not idle. We're never ever meant to just be sitting and resting and and relaxing in what we are because that's not what we've been called to do because God is at work. And the gospel is not a treasure for us to protect or to to, kind of hold back and, and keep for ourselves. It's not something that we need to lock away like the gold in Fort Knox. But the gospel is a treasure that must be shared and given and taken to others so they may know it. This morning, as we consider what it means to be a church that's after God's heart, especially in light of what we call missions, I want to I just give a quick definition here of what I think missions is. And now, now we can have many technical definitions, and, and we can talk about what it means. I just want to give my simple, quick definition of what I mean by this this morning. Missions is the taking of the gospel to other people in other places. Missions is the taking of the gospel to other people in other places. Now, I want to draw a distinction here between missions and evangelism. 
That doesn't mean we don't take the gospel to our neighbors and to our friends. That's what I would call evangelism, giving the gospel to them. Missions, however, is a different thing for us when we talk about it. It's the taking of the gospel to other people in other places and all that entails, leaving your home, leaving your comfort, learning another language, recognizing a different culture, all that entails Missions is taking the gospel to other people in other places. And so when we consider Acts 13, we begin to see what the DNA of a church that is following after the heart of God must look like. And I just have three simple things here that we give. First, missions is at the heart of God. Missions is at the heart of God. As we move to this section in Acts 13... The next section of the book, we notice that our attention really moves away from what's come before. Acts 13 is a natural break in the book. Everything seems to change. We're switching away from Peter. We had had kind of walked with Peter throughout in those first 12 chapters, right? We'd seen Peter at work in chapter 2 and and Peter in prison in chapter 3 and at chapter 4. And we'd we'd seen that work of what Peter had done in the life of the church and, and going throughout all of Israel and Samaria. We'd seen that work, but now we're kind of shifting away. Now that doesn't mean Peter will not appear again because he will. Peter will show up again in chapter 15 and in another place. But but really we're shifting away from that ministry of Peter and moving toward the ministry of Paul. Here we see that in fact in chapter 13 it is Barnabas and Saul, which is said at first, His name will be changed to Paul in chapter 13, verse 9. And really, by the time you get to the end of chapter 13, it's no longer Barnabas and Saul. Now it's Paul and Barnabas. He really kind of shifts here to see how the ministry goes toward Paul. And we're going to follow Paul. Even when Peter shows up, it's because Peter and Paul have a beef with one another that they must work out in chapter 15. We're moving now to a shift towards Paul, the progression is seen even in our chapter. We also move away from Jerusalem here. We move away from Jerusalem. Now, again, we'll return to Jerusalem a few times for the the council in chapter 15. Paul will be arrested there in chapter 22. We'll return to Jerusalem a few times, but now this shift is moving away from Jerusalem as the central location of the church. Now, I want you to understand the significance of this. Jerusalem had been the central location of worship for the people of God for centuries now. That's where the temple was. That's where you were to go and offer up sacrifices. That's where you were to go and, and worship. In fact, many have described it, and it's maybe, uh, maybe, maybe a little overly simplistic, but still uh, helpful for us, that up until this point, it had been a, a come and see religion. Come to Jerusalem and see the work of God here. Come here. This is where worship at the temple is taking place. This is where you are to come if you are to be faithful to God to give your offering and give your sacrifices. Jerusalem was the center of it. And ultimately, we saw this in in Acts as the the church began there in Jerusalem and, and it was raised up there and the leadership in Jerusalem. We've seen that. 
But now everything shifts away from Jerusalem and away from the temple, and we begin to see the change in things in the New Testament. So if we were to say up until this point, it's been a come and see religion, basically come to Jerusalem and see and worship the Lord. Now it shifts, as we know, to a go and tell religion. Not just to come and see, but now go and tell. Spread out and let others know what happens. This is a a major shift in the, the, the scriptures themselves. For when Jesus was raised again, he told them, go and make disciples. Don't You don't have to bring them here. You can go and tell them and let them know of what is to come. Recognize this. Christianity is one of the few, if only, uh, only religion in the world that does not have a central location as its hub. A central location. There's no central location that we go to. There's no Christian Mecca, if you will. There's no place that we can go to that's so vitally important that we have to have a pilgrimage there if we're going to have faith or we're going to show our faith or we're going to show anything. Now, you can go to Jerusalem and you can you can figure out the money and get on your bus and listen to the tour guides. You know what I'm talking about. You can do all of those things to learn about the the place, the geography of the scriptures, and it's so enlightening. But you don't have to go to Jerusalem to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to go to any particular geographic location to know God and to follow God. That's not who we are. In fact, the go and tell has spread out from Jerusalem into the uttermost parts of the earth, and we here can proclaim the name of Christ. We here can do it. What we see then is this expansion takes place. As this expansion takes place, we we notice, as some have said, What really happens is that the local church, the local church becomes the headquarters. The local church becomes the headquarters. As we we saw just a few weeks ago, that local church becomes the embassy of God in a foreign land. And everywhere it goes, it claims this place for the Lord. And that local church becomes the headquarters of sending people and letting them go and tell. And Antioch, Antioch becomes the prototype of this. Up until this point, when the gospel was spread, it was spread mainly by persecution or because of persecution. Persecution came and they left out of Jerusalem and persecution came and they left out into Samaria and they they went to this place and that. Persecution has, has risen up and it's kind of driven the believers out, but not the case here in Antioch. In Antioch, The call for them to go and leave out of Antioch is not coming from persecution, but it's coming because they recognize the heart of God and to reach the nations. It's coming because they see that what they've been given is a a gospel not to be protected and held dear. They're not to, to, to lounge away in the corner. And if they've learned anything throughout the persecution, they've learned that even when persecution comes, the gospel cannot be stopped. And so we're not to hold it back, but we're to go. This is what God's heart is for us, to take the gospel to someone else because God is a missionary God. The Bible is not simply a book about missions. It is a missions book. 
And there is a clear distinction in what I mean here. Christopher Wright, the biblical scholar, has made this point in his his groundbreaking book, a really a a shaping book for me called The Mission of God, which looks at the the great meta-narrative of Scripture and what God is doing. And he makes the case that quite oftentimes we talk about a biblical view of something, right? We have a biblical view of marriage, and we have a biblical view of finances, and we have a biblical view of government, we have a biblical view of this, and a biblical view of that when we when we take what the scriptures say about certain things but what Christopher Wright says and I think he's right is that we cannot properly say that there's a biblical view of missions because the Bible is about missions from start to finish it's what it is there's no way it's a biblical view of missions it's a missionary book in and of itself it's what it's all about God's heart is on display all throughout the Bible to continually go after his people, to continually pursue them. Think of Jesus himself. Jesus, in this essence, was the first great missionary, right? He's the one who who left his home above in heaven with God, faithfully there, and he came to us, to our place to proclaim his name amongst us. He left what was secure and comfortable and he gave up all of that to come here so that he may redeem us and bring the good news to us, right? Jesus is the first great missionary. He came, he left heaven to seek and save the lost. Not just persecution should send us out, but the very heart of God is on display in his church. When God's people go after those who are lost to proclaim the name of the Lord. God's heart is a missionary heart. And so ultimately then, if that's the case, if that's God's heart, then missions must be at the heart of the church. If God's heart is about missions and and, and that's where he wants and that's what he's after and he's been laying that out and displaying that, then, then missions must be the heart of the church. But how? How? Three things we see in our passage here. First, we see worship. How will our heart become in tune with God's heart is the question. If God's heart is to seek and save the lost and to go and tell, for us to go and tell of the gospel, and he's the great missionary God that has put that on display for us, then our church must be after that. Our heart must reflect his heart, right? So how do we get our heart right before God to live out as his people in a way that he's called us to? First, it's through worship. It's through worship. He tells us this. He says, they're sitting there, all these uh, prophets and teachers, he names, will come back to them while they were worshiping the Lord. It's while they were worshiping the Lord, the Spirit will speak to them. Worship is at the heart of what we do as a church. It's the reason why we gather. We come here today to worship. Now, probably one of the most influential paragraphs in my life has come from a book by John Piper, Let the Nations Be Glad. Now, y'all have heard this before. Books don't change people's lives, paragraphs too. Have you ever heard that? You know, it's, it's really, you can, and that's not for you not to read a book, but there's that time when, when everything is kind of drawn together for you in a simple paragraph and you say, that's what it's about. Well, it's the very first paragraph of the book, Let the Nations Be Glad. The very first thing he says 
Here's someone, myself, who, who loves missions and wants to be a part of missions and all about it. And here's what, here's what Piper says in this first paragraph. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. And with it, when this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. Ultimately, that's right. The reason why we're here is to worship God. And what, what Piper is getting at is this. Worship sends us to the nations. Worship, when understood rightly, develops within our heart a desire for God to be glorified in everything we do, right? It's a desire for God to be exalted, for God to be lifted up. And when we are worshiping him, then we feel that satisfaction of doing exactly what we've been created to do, giving glory and honor to the Lord, displaying that glory for his name. So worship becomes the fuel for us to go out and find others and say, let me tell you what I found. I found what satisfies me. I found what brings me joy. I found my happiness. I found my employment for all of eternity. I'm going to worship the Lord. I'm going to worship him. This is the fuel for us to go and find others. There are people out there that have been created in God's image and their great fulfillment for them in their whole life would be to worship him, yet they don't know about him. Don't I want to go tell him? Piper says we are going out to invite them into the white-hot worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is the fuel that drives us to go and bring others unto the Lord. Welcome others in. Say, join me in what we'll be doing for all of eternity. That's the fuel for it and the goal. Worship is the fuel that stirs our hearts to go and bring others in. And the goal for which we have missions to gather around the throne to worship him one day. So as the church was worshiping, it is no surprise. It is no surprise that the Spirit speaks to them and says, go, tell others, bring them in. But then there's two more things here, and I'm going to put them together. Fasting and prayer. How do we get to the heart of God? We worship Him, and then fasting and prayer. Now, we'll get to prayer in a second, and we'll spend less time on prayer than fasting. Fasting is, uh, I want to speak to, a, a discipline that is in much neglect for us, right? Somebody was trying to explain to me intermittent fasting. That doesn't comprehend in my mind. You know what I'm saying? Like, just I'm just going to not eat? Like, what, what, what are we doing here? You know, is this a, and so this, this idea, and I couldn't, it, they couldn't say intermittent right, so I Kept thought they were saying internet fasting, and we just were not connecting. But fasting in and of itself, of course, is a biblical concept. Not just that, it is a discipline that the Lord Jesus introduces to his people. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it passed on. And what is the purpose of fasting? Prayer, just quickly, is regular and constant communication with the Lord, right? Fasting, fasting has a purpose. Fasting comes with a purpose to discover what it is that God would have us to do. 
some major decision coming up, some major thing. We see in Scripture that fasting takes place to find out what it is God would have us to do. And so we see several different fasts in Scripture. We see the normal fast where you withhold food for a certain time to, to communicate with God and, and to, to, to take that away. We see the idea of a partial fast like Daniel did where he, he only eats simple food, if you will, or an absolute fast that we see where there's no food or water in Ezra chapter 10. We see a private fast, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you fast and don't let anybody else know you are doing it. We see here in Acts 13 a congregational fast as the church together fasted and prayed as to discern the will of God. Now, a couple things about fasting. One, Jesus expects us to do it. He assumes it, which means, I believe, he expects us. And fasting then practically could be anything, anything that means an inconvenience in your life. So fasting doesn't just mean you can't eat. I mean, that would be an inconvenience for some of us, right? But it could also be other things in our life that would inconvenience us, right? It would be things that, that we think we're dependent upon. And so we stop doing those things for a while. Maybe it is. And I don't want to simplify this because I don't think Jesus' intention was to just say, I'm going to fast and, you know, I'm not going to wear socks for two weeks or something like that. I think his intention here is to, for us to take things that we think we are dependent upon and to fast or keep them away for a period of time so as we can recognize that our utter and total dependence is upon the Lord. That's what it's for. And so we think we have to have this because we can't survive without it, yet we fast from it. Maybe it's even something we enjoy a lot. Maybe it's even something we, we think is great. I fasted for coffee for a while, but that was because I had heartburn, so it doesn't count. <laughs> but for some reason, there may be something in my life that I think I'm dependent upon or I can't do without and so the Lord is leading me during a pivotal time or a decision that needs to be made to, to do without that thing so I can recognize that I'm utterly and totally dependent upon him. You see, the Lord is telling us that fasting is to be expected and it's anything that we may inconvenience us so that it leads us to our absolute dependence upon God. Oftentimes, we go through life without prayer or fasting. And, and, and God in his graciousness works everything out for us, doesn't he? We don't pray about it, we don't fast, but it just works out and we get the good news and we, we, we hear about it. And you know what the great danger is? The great danger is that we may get that good news or that may work out for us and we think we did it. We think we accomplished it. Prayer and fasting reminds us that there's nothing we have that has not been given to us by God. And he has done these great things for us. Prayer is constant, regular communication with God. It's the air we breathe as believers. Fasting oftentimes is for a purpose at a specific time in our life where the great decision needs to be made. I get people all the time come to me and ask about God's will in their life. What is it that God would have me to do? And they always look strange when I say, maybe you should pray and fast. Because every time in Scripture that happens, God answers. Because it shows our dependence upon Him. It helps us find His heart. 
when the church prays and when the church fasts, they find out what to do. This prayer and fasting go together because both of them speak to our dependence upon God and help us discover the heart of God. Help us discover the heart of God, which leads finally to number three. Missions can only be accomplished through the power of the Spirit. They're worshiping, they're praying, they're fasting, and the Scriptures make it clear. The Holy Spirit said. The Holy Spirit said. Now, the Holy, it doesn't tell us how the Holy Spirit spoke. It doesn't tell us exactly what happened. We can, we can, I think, safely assume that the Spirit spoke to maybe one of these prophets and teachers or to them collectively as a, as a body where their heart was drawn in. But here's what I know. Here's what I know. The Scriptures tell us that the Lord will give us the desires of our heart, right? Now, we also know, we also know the Lord's not going to give us sinful desires there. What the scriptures are telling us is that when we pray, when we fast, when we worship, our heart becomes in line with God's heart and the desires that we have in our own heart, the Lord fulfills because we are after God's heart with ours. And so here, I think that's what we see the Spirit speaks while they're fasting, praying, worshiping, the Holy Spirit said. Notice it gives, it is the Spirit of God who gives direction and power to the church. Jesus had told his church, it is better for me after he'd been raised uh, before he was raised and even after. It is better for me to go. It's better for you for me to go than to stay here with you. Now, that may have blown their mind because this, Jesus was there and you think having Jesus is great. Jesus says, when I go, I'll send my spirit here. And it's the spirit that's going to direct you and guide you. It's the spirit of God who's going to point you towards Jesus himself as the vicar of Christ. And it's the spirit of God who's going to empower you to fulfill what God's called you to. Notice what the spirit does here in this as it gives direction and power to the church. Notice the church itself. These prophets and teachers that it lists out that the Lord has supplied the church with to show them where they are to go. It gives us five names. You got Barnabas, you got Simeon, Lucius, Manan, and Saul. These five names testify to something quite important here in the church. Simeon is called Niger, which is Latin for the word black, most likely speaks of the color of his skin or where he is from in Africa. Lucius is a Cyrenian from North Africa. You have Manan. It says he was raised or reared, if you will, with Herod the Tetrarch, known him his whole life. And, and you remember Herod back in the day, right? And, and, and we have that passage. So he has that. So he's upper class. He's elite. He's been raised with a king, hanging out with a king, right? So you have this upper class elite. You have Lucius, a North African. You have Simeon, uh, a Latin uh, Word here for black. You have Saul of Tarsus, who was trained as a Pharisee. You have Barnabas from Cyprus, who was a Jew during the diaspora. All of these people had come together in one place with one voice in the church in Antioch. A most thorough diversity, if you will, had come to this place. Socioeconomic, color, culture, all had come together, and they all came together for one thing. My friends, that's only the work and power of the Spirit. 
In fact, I would say that during this age, at this time, that the world was more divided even than it is now. It's hard for us to believe, but you're talking about no one knew what was going on in North Africa. No one knew. They were separated completely, but now they have come together. And this is unexplainable except for the work of the Spirit in the heart of each and every one of them. The one unifying theme in all of them is the Spirit of God and Him dwelling there. And the Holy Spirit gives these as they worship together, as they pray together, as they fast together. It gives them the direction they need to reach the nations. And we'll see this, by the way, over and over again in Acts. We'll see how the Spirit guides and the Spirit directs. We'll see also how the Spirit gives the power. The words they need at the right time and the right place are given to them by the Spirit of God. What we need to know this morning is that if you are a child of God, this same spirit that directed the church at Antioch and sent them out is the same spirit that dwells in you. If you're a child of God today, you've been born again by the Spirit of God, as the Scripture says. And the Spirit dwells inside you, and the Spirit dwells inside me. And so the unity we have through the power of the Spirit as we come together and worship the Lord, as we seek God's face and the dependence upon Him through prayer and through fasting, that unity that was there in Antioch, that, that this, this moment in chapter 13 literally changes the world. From this place, the gospel goes out and literally the gospel begins here in Antioch and goes forward to the ends of the earth, finally reaching Taylor, South Carolina, when God's people, no matter what culture, no matter what diversity, no matter what they may be, when they come together with the unity of the Spirit, seeking the Lord in all that they do, worshiping prayer and fasting, the world can be changed for Jesus Christ. And that's what we see here in Antioch. And if you're a child of God, then you're a part of that. I've said so many times that I want to be caught doing not what matters just today or two weeks from now. I want to be doing what matters 10,000 years from now. And ultimately, that's what we see here in Antioch. A church that says, God has told us to go and tell. We don't need persecution to make us do it. We don't need some sort of push out of the nest. God has called us to do it. Let's do what he's called us to do. Let's display the heart of God in our own life through the power of his spirit to go and to share and to tell. What you see in here in this, these three little verses literally changes the world for Jesus as the people of God worship, pray, and fast together. Missions is at the heart of God. Missions must be at the heart of our church. And what I mean by that is missions is not simply the responsibility of a few mission-minded people. Missions is the responsibility of our entire church to go and to share, and to proclaim, to take the gospel, because it's the heart of God, it must be at our heart. And the opportunities for us are great, but what we ask is that you pray, just as they prayed. It's no small thing, it's no cop-out. Pray sincerely for God to raise up workers to go and proclaim the good news in places that's never heard before. 
fast even, if you will, to recognize our dependence on God on everything. Worship the Lord together. And let that worship burn within us a desire to take that good news to the people who do not know him and cannot worship him now. So they can. Our church must reflect the heart of God, but how about you as well? If our church is going to reflect it, then each and every one of us must reflect it. So ask God, what is it that he would have you to do? You're worshiping, you're praying, you're fasting. Maybe it is the fact that God is calling you, yes, even you, to go. To go and take the gospel to someone who hasn't heard to go and seek and save the lost in places that are foreign and different for us. William Carey did not seem like a likely candidate. But God called him. And the Lord used him to change the world for Jesus. And may he do the same for us. May he call us, call you, and use us to change the world for his name. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christ Jesus. Thank you for the gospel message that we have to go and to tell. May we not hide that here, Father, but may we take it. May we take it. And God, we pray today that you would be working even now, working in our midst, to develop within each and every one of us a heart and a desire that reflects yours, to reach and proclaim your good news anywhere and everywhere we go. Father, maybe even now you're working on someone here. And God, I know it does not matter what age that you can work on someone here from 8 to 80 or on up, God, that maybe you're calling to go. Father, may we be quick to listen. Father, may we demonstrate in our own lives a heart for you. God, we pray that you do work even now in Jesus' name. Even as we sing together and stand, we'll have someone waiting in the black back. We have every avenue here at the life of our church for you to not only say you want to go and be a missionary or go and share or even be more vocal with your neighbors, we want to help and serve you with that. If that's your commitment today, we would love it. We would love to walk alongside you in the process. But also know this, also know this, that the gospel is for each and every one of us. And that today, if you do not know the Lord, then he's calling even you to know him and follow him. Maybe calling even you to join up here at this church, this embassy, as an ambassador for Christ, as we seek to reach the nations and change the world for Jesus together. Let's stand and sing.